Hello and welcome to a special edition of Addiction Audio. Uh, today I'm talking to Professor John Marsden, who is the Editor-in-Chief at Addiction Journal, as well as a Professor of Addiction Psychology at the Addictions Department at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College London. Um, John, uh, welcome to Addiction Audio. Thank you, Rob. Great to be with you. Um, so uh, we're talking about your recent editorial, um, which is titled, uh, it's all about pre-registration, and it's titled Pre-Registration, Not a Daunting Practice. I mean, my opening question has to be, is it really not a daunting practice? I'm so glad you've picked up on the, the title. <laughs> um, what we're trying to do here is, is really encourage our readers you know who we you know we perceive as a as a really broad international church of practitioners and researchers and policymakers commissioners but but for the, the the body of our readership to really come with us on this journey towards much much greater transparency that is one of the reasons to pre-register uh, primary research uh, studies and reviews, all research really. And the title was chosen because we recognize that it can be a bit daunting. And I, and I hope in this discussion we can we can elaborate on why that might be. But we're really trying to say, look, it, it isn't that difficult. And there's a couple of things that we're putting out in the editorial that we think really reduces what might be anxiety in some quarters. And I think we've got a way in which we can make this not a daunting practice. So uh, you say that this is this is for all studies. So, I mean, pre-registration has been around a while for, say, systematic reviews. And uh, you talk a bit about randomised controlled trials in this article. Is this for all studies or are there kind of priorities for pre-registration? It's a really good question, isn't it? Because as you say, I think the research field generally um, is, is known for setting out a description of what's going to be done uh, for randomized controlled trials and certainly for reviews, uh, systematic reviews. Although not all, you know, we, we receive manuscripts that, uh, are, that describe systematic reviews that haven't been. And, and as, I hope will be, as I hope I'll be able to outline, that's fine, but there needs to be some mention of that in the way in which we perceive the results. Um, but there hasn't really, until relatively recently, been the same type of approach to registration for observational studies, um, experimental studies, and not least, um, and with the greatest of respect to colleagues active in the field, qualitative research. And we think that pre-registration can be done and should be done for everything. Um, I don't really think of it as something that should be applied only to certain types of research design uh, for reasons that I think are, are, are fairly important, but also logical and clear, really. Um, so, I mean, I think probably one of the one of the large concerns about pre-registration is, you know, that things do change. You know, so, so what happens to someone if they've pre-registered, like, this is what I'm going to do, this is my idea. What happens then if, if they, they have to change their study design, their aims or their objectives or something substantial in their methods somewhere along the way? Does the pre-registration kind of 
make that more difficult or a more arduous um, process? Well, I think you've put your finger right on the, the nub of this and, and some of the factors that actually are and have driven anxiety among the research fraternity. Um, so, for example, things do happen, things do occur. There are sometimes adaptations that need to be made in the way data might be collected. Rather obviously, perhaps a, a, possibly a temporary shift to the collection of uh, research participant information by telephone or online, um, as opposed to face-to-face, -face, has likely or not been something that many researchers have had to do during the pandemic, rather obviously. And that wasn't something that anyone could have foreseen. So things do happen, do occur. And if I may, just to sort of be fairly clear about what we're saying, let's take the example of a randomized controlled trial. Um, one of the designs that I spend my, my academic career sort of plowing away at. What we uh, are expected to do is, is put a description of the trial up on a, a registration database, uh, clinicaltrials.gov, for example. And um, that will give readers um, an opportunity to see that a study is being done on a particular question uh, with a particular exposure and a type of patient sample. Um, and hopefully with a description of why and what are going to be the, the measures used to uh, answer questions. And you don't get to see much more than that normally, but you get to see that this is being done. And that has one major benefit, which is that it, it now behoves the uh, researchers to report. And so it's not that you register and then somehow something happens and the, the study findings are sort of buried in the file drawer. It behoves the re re researchers to report. But it doesn't necessarily assure the reader that what is reported is exactly what was set out to be done. And that's where good practice to publish a protocol. Um, there are many journals that publish uh, protocols. Addiction looks for really high-powered uh, studies that are likely to provide you know, quite robust answers. And we publish uh, a few each year that are going to do that, we hope. And those protocols provide even more detail, though. It's, they start to really set out exactly what's being done, what the primary outcome measures are, uh, outcome measure is, the secondaries, the methods of um, uh, investigation analytically. But even then, what's then done finally, once the data is, if you like, locked for analysis after every participant's information has been collected, that may still that may still be subject to change, and and that's where I think very contemporary practice is that the analysis plan, uh, the definitive analysis plan, is published somewhere before the data is locked. Uh, I I quite like doing mine publishing mine on the open science framework. Uh, there are plenty of other places that you can use, but open science framework has been doing I think incredibly important work in encouraging this practice. And um, what we do is we put up our analysis plans before we lock the data and then we run the analysis. And what that then means is that the final analysis plan has been crafted 
after as many of the changes that have been needed to be made have been accounted for. Okay, so uh, there's a diff there's a gap, quite a long gap usually between the initial registration and the the uploading, if you will, online of the analysis plan. And taking your time over that is one of the points we're trying to get out in the editorial uh, for the journal so that it's not that you need to be able to assume no change at all. I, I think it's very rare for a study to not require some adjustments, hopefully not with the primary outcome measure, hopefully not with the participant inclusion and exclusion criteria, but often with some of the procedures that may impact on the way the study is interpreted and analysed. What, so what happens to uh, people who kind of uh, make kind of happy accidents, so to speak? You know, it's like you're looking at um, you're looking at the effect of you know x on y, and you're halfway through your analysis, and you just notice that it's apples. It's just that everyone was eating apples. There's just a startling correlation. It's after all the points for pre-registration. Um, does this kind of eliminate reporting of, of those kinds of happy accidents or, or would you then be kind of, would you then have to kind of start again and pre-register that as something new? No, again, I think you've put your finger on a, an equally important point. And, and the last thing we want to do is ever to, you know, stifle or impede that wondrous moment where something unexpected has been discovered. Let's be clear about the, the history of science is littered with these, you know, happy accidents, of course. Um, if we just do a slight counterfactual and, and imagine there's no pre-registration, it's very difficult to determine which of the findings in that context or scenario that are being presented as important were actually the ones that were, you know, questions that were looked for. At in the in the outset. So without pre-registration, there is a risk of chance and, and the risk of potential bias. So that you know that often there is a sort of you know a, a, in the past there has been a, a concern that with the ease of computing that a whole bunch of correlations are asked of a statistical package or a whole bunch of tests in some way. And in a way, the ones that come out as, as being reliable with a probability of, you know, less than, of error, less than one in 20, for example, um, somehow get written up. But I'm trying to get to your point, and it's really important because the most powerful and persuasive reports that we're looking for in the journal and then then i and i read in the literature in every journal that i come across are ones where you get a clear question a clear analysis plan that that links to the results section almost maps directly corresponds research question or hypothesis even one maps to result one etc you get to feel such a sense of clear authority from that in a way. But sometimes the, the report says, actually, we, what we didn't expect was a particular finding. It, 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 we take it as being exploratory. Uh, we didn't plan for this, but it, it arose somehow. And uh, I, for me, I would 
probably say that the discussion would would flag that the study team is going to devote another analysis to that question uh, in the future. And really the best plan there would be to say, okay, what's the analysis plan for this question? Okay, let's, uh, let's describe that analysis plan and publish it somewhere. So it's date stamped uh, the OSF, Open Science Framework provides a really easy way of doing that. And then implement the analysis. So you, I, I, can, I think what you're saying is that, well, if there was a sort of signal for something, um, a, a sense of correlation or, or, or possibly like a subgroup might appear to have a very different response to a particular exposure. Um, my own view is that we would not want to devote too much attention to that since we've got hopefully a whole bunch of other things that we did want to look at that are um, you know, highlighted in the article. But absolutely, and you know, and the, I think what well, the other thing, the other thing we're trying to do in the in the editorial is is really sort of help people realize that all is not lost if you realize after you know publishing your analysis plan that you made a mistake. Doesn't matter. All you need to do is say, uh, you know, we, we get this a lot. Sometimes reviewers say, well, I don't think that's the right analysis. And the, the author says, oh, um, well, hold on. That's the one we said we were going to use. And it's a, well, no, no, hold on. If it's, if, if it's probably not the right one, stop, do the right analysis. Just write that into the new version of the manuscript and all is not lost. Um, it's, it's transparency rather than necessarily perfection from the outset is kind of the, the goal. goal. It, it, it absolutely is. And, and I, I, we've said in the, in the text for the editorial, we've made a claim. I don't have any evidence for it, but I feel it's true, which is that the more there is demonstrable transparency up to and including literally the, the analysis uh, code that's being used for a particular statistical program, the more that's available, the more the cogs and the machinery of peer review run smooth. Reviewers love it. Editors feel really clear that what's been presented is what was planned. And that makes, I think, that tips the likelihood of success and acceptance of publication in favour of the authors. Not, I think this is the fear. The fear is that it tilts the likelihood of publication success away from the manuscript. And I, and I don't think that's the case. And what people don't like, uh, what they don't like at all, uh, is a manuscript that doesn't seem to reflect the protocol or what was described in the analysis plan. That gets a head scratch. And once that happens, reviewers and editors start to kind of move away from a manuscript. They start, to be honest, they possibly start to think of other reasons that they might have submerged as to why they don't like it. Um, and we're really trying to encourage people to, to just plan, adapt if you need to, change if you have to, but just have a clear narrative about that. Um, and everyone benefits from that. It means that what was done is much more reproducible. So that helps a major concern that we have in contemporary science. And I think it just means that we get 
hopefully to have much more meaningful and, imp and impactful science that, that you know, can be used by um, all, all the key stakeholders in the research process. So, I mean, if someone's listening now and they're, they're in their study uh, and they think, oh, I wish I'd, I wish I'd pre-registered this. What's, what's the last point at which pre-registration is possible? You mentioned about data becoming locked. I mean, is that the last point at which you can pre-register? What's, what's the kind of cutoff? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the best practice is that there is, there is evidence that the plan for analysis has a date that precedes the submission of the report and, and by definition, the implementation of the analysis. Um, it's true that sometimes you might not be absolutely clear what the command code is going to look like. Um, one really good example, uh, I think, that exemplifies the point I'm making is missing data. So first of all, you can't ignore it. You must have a plan for how you detect and manage it, but I bet people haven't got such precision about that and that there is going to be a need of discovery. You need to, first of all, you need to work out, <clears throat> does it appear to be correlated with something? So how random is it? Um, and it may be that some of the, the methods you use, which can be quite computationally intensive, it may be that what you thought you'd do just doesn't seem to settle. The, the, the computer kind of never makes its mind up or something. And all is not lost. I think the narrative is we, you know, we plan to use procedure squiggle Y, and in the end, for these reasons, we've used gamma G, and it's fine. It's again, it's about it's about that kind of process. That makes sense. Um, there are wider issues within within research, and certainly not limited to uh, addiction research. Uh, about kind of pre-registration and, and I think there's that there's that balance isn't there it's like sure you know happy accidents but we want those to be a, a small proportion of the overall literature um you know you want transparent replicable um and uh, clearly defined studies rather than lots and lots of happy accidents dressed up as, as what we plan to do in the first place um but you talk about the replicability crisis which um, which keeps kind of resonating in, in, in these kinds of uh, uh, forums. Can you explain a bit about, about what that is and perhaps how uh, pre-registration um, might help address that? Yes, well, it, it, it is absolutely a key problem. In a sense, it's the failure for um, subsequent studies to observe the same level of effect for a that a preceding study has observed, so that the, the finding of study one isn't observed again for study two. Um, and that obviously leads to uncertainty about both studies. Um, there's lots of reasons for it that perhaps we won't go into here, but some of them include the problem of overreaching what can be said from relatively small scale research studies um, that, that are often lacking in statistical power. 
so that they, the estimates that are drawn from those analyses are, are, are imprecise. And research takes ages to do, and there's lots of investment, of course, and lots of hands deployed to converting resources to findings. And perhaps there has been a tendency to overreach in what can be said. So running another study with the same parameters as the first um, can often result in a very poorly replicable finding. And um, almost always what we need to do in our fields uh, in, in the addiction sciences is to run larger studies, which have got potential for more precision in terms of sampling. And partly what pre-registration can do is help a future research team understand what was done so that the research design and exposures and measures and analysis can be aligned. Um, so there are many other reasons as well, but, but I, think, I think primarily it's the idea of transparency, which converts into, um, I think, a, a, a clear understanding. One of the other things we're trying to address in the editorial is, is just our sense that sometimes researchers can feel that they really have to implement and write up what they plan to do. Um, otherwise, um, somehow we will take against them for that. You know, we, if we think there's been a mistake, that, that somehow the world will look against that endeavor. And, and like, we don't think that's the case. Um, I might add as well, of course, that in the tendency for wanting to find you know, effects of interventions, correlations among variables, et cetera, pre-registration also helps the publication of null findings. Um, so from our point of view, no matter what was found, if there was a clear plan to look for a particular um, answer, no matter what was found, we would want to publish it because uh, it can take its place in, in future systematic reviews. And it may be, there may be many reasons for it. Maybe the study was underpowered. Uh, it may be, there may be other reasons. So the fact that there is a null finding shouldn't be any negative reason for rejection for any manuscript. Um, and I think sometimes in the, in the past, there has been a worry that, well, we didn't find an effect no one will want to publish. And that's, that's a long way away from how we see things in addiction. If we take things to an extreme, so if we imagine a study that um, is published that wasn't pre-registered, it doesn't really have um, any sort of upstream description of why it was done, <laughs> but that there's a very strongly um, curated finding for the key audience. You know, this, we think this is really important. Um, massive correlation or ma you know, massive adjusted odds ratio, whatever it is. Um, it may be that that paper becomes hugely cited, but it, can, it might take us as a, as, a, as a scientific field down false paths. Um, and that's what we don't want to do. You know, you imagine the wasteful effort to think, oh, my goodness, this is a this looks like an absolute key thing. Let's see if it occurs in another part of the world with another population or something. And, and then lo and behold, it doesn't. Um, 
So there are there's all manner of biases that, that relate to the scientific endeavor. And, and this is really just a small element that um, we're, we're hoping that uh, our readers and our you know, research contributors to the journal, you know, many of whom are, are, are across this and have been for many years, that we, we hope that everyone will take um, you know, an, an interest in this. I just did a simple tot up with, with the um, office team for the journal. And I think last year we had, we had around two thirds of clinical trials and reviews um, that were pre-registered, um, but only about a 10th of cohort studies were. And as far as I can tell, no qualitative studies were pre-registered. Now, now that, that's not to say that there wasn't you know, a research proposal somewhere saying what this was gonna be about, but what there wasn't, for example, was a description of the theoretical framework or model that was gonna drive and underpin the analysis, how the findings would be, uh, would link to the wider literature and so forth. And we, we've been, I think, uh, fairly distinguished as a, as a journal for a very keen interest in qualitative science. And, and we've published recently some, what I think are absolutely top flight guidelines for qualitative researchers. I'm hoping that our pre-registration editorial will be, will be kind of hopefully embraced in the same way as those guidelines for qualitative methods um, have been. Um, but I, I think in particular, I'd like to see observational longitudinal cohort studies um, to really be, be much more likely to be pre-registered. There's no reason for them not to be. Um, some are, but not all. There's a big gap here. And I, th I think it's going to make a huge difference in, in the way we regard the quality and, and hopefully the, the impact of that particular design. So if, if someone's listening in there, they're planning a, uh, an observational study at the moment, and they're thinking, okay, fine, I'll, I'll pre-register. Um, I mean, uh, are they looking at, like, is this going to take them three days? Is it going to take them half an hour? Is it going to take them an afternoon? Um, what's that kind of process like? Yeah, so um, it can be done reasonably quickly. It could also be done without publication cost, if that's the choice. One way it could be done is for the proposal for the study, which must exist somewhere, to be converted into a protocol manuscript and for that to be published. I mean, that's, as, as, as we were saying, that's very commonly done for randomized controlled trials. Um, but the journals that publish those types of protocols um, certainly welcome observational studies. So publication of the protocol seems like a good idea. Uh, it could be in a journal, it could be on open science, for example, um, in which you're literally placing a, a protocol summary and showing that it was published before, ideally, the cohort was created. Um, it doesn't have to be, but that would be obviously best practice. I personally can't see why the analysis plan for the cohort can't be published in exactly the same way as the analysis plan for a randomized trial is published before the data is locked. Mm -hmm. um, 
So aligning with best practice for trials with the observational studies, I think would make a, would make a rate step improvement for science um, for all the reasons we've been talking about. Um, uh, if, there's a, if there's a compelling reason why I'm wrong, I, I hope people write in and tell me. Um, and listen, I must say that I, I've been around for quite a while. The last major observational cohort study I did, we didn't pre-register. So, you know, I, it's not as if I live in a glass house. You know, I, I, I do understand that it's an evolving process, but I like to think in, if, we, if we were to re-record our discussion in several years time, I'd like to hope that you might be saying to me, well, look at this, it's now, it looks like it's now standard practice. That would be, that would be really um, very welcome indeed. Uh, Professor John Marsden, it's been fantastic talking to you about pre-registration and as, uh, as suggested, if anyone has any disagreement or any questions, please do uh, get in touch. Um, uh, Professor John Marsden, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Rob. It's been a pleasure.